Hey folks, this is Charlotte Clymer. My pronouns are she, her, and you are listening to a brand new episode of Charlotte's Web Thoughts. This is the audio slash podcast version of the actual Charlotte's Web Thoughts on substack.com. You can go subscribe to that at charlotteclymer.substack.com. It's completely free. All you need is an email. It takes less than five seconds and it helps me out immensely. So please do go subscribe charlotteclimber.substack.com July 13th, 2022 God bless the disarming Gabby Giffords Four months is a long time these days At least for me, it used to be that four months was a bit of a jog but easily contextualized in the brain's aerial view I could look backwards and easily spot that marker now, it seems, the space-time continuum has been cruelly mocked and warped by current events in such a way that a month in 2022 honestly feels legitimately equal to a quarter in 2011. And looking back that far, even that much is a fool's errand, only bound to disappoint. Whatever you were doing four months ago, the world continues to indifferently spin and to spun up difference from what it once was. Four months ago was before 19 children and two teachers were murdered in Uvalde, Texas. Four months ago was before a white supremacist murdered 10 innocents targeting the black community in Buffalo, New York. Four months ago was before, and actually wait, be honest with me, without looking it up, how easily can you recall the details of that horrific mass shooting on the New York City subway in April? That wasn't even four months ago. Exactly four months ago yesterday, I was at South by Southwest watching the world premiere of Gabby Giffords' Won't Back Down, a documentary about the former Arizona Congresswoman who survived a brutal assassination attempt in 2011 that left six others murdered and has since been on a journey of remarkable advocacy, both in her medical rehabilitation after being shot in the head at point blank range and the widely praised leadership role she has undertaken in the gun reform movement. The documentary is superb and we'll get to that in a second, but I wanna further underline that four months ago was a completely different world, especially for the families in Highland Park and Tulsa and Uvalde, and Buffalo, and Pittsburgh, and Sacramento. And I honestly wouldn't blame you at all for missing details on a few of these. In America in 2022, it's hard for even the most news-centric among us to keep up with the mass shootings that make national news, let alone the unending cascade of underreported mass shootings that tear through communities across the country. Since March 12, 2022, that was the date of the world premiere at South by Southwest, since that day, four months ago, there have been more than 250 mass shootings, according to the Gun Violence Archive. In other words, there has been an average of more than two mass shootings per day since Gabby Giffords premiered her deeply moving and galvanizing documentary in Austin, more than twice daily. Think about that. This past Monday, July 11th, was a good day for America, but particularly meaningful for Gabby Giffords and every other survivor and advocate in the gun reform movement. Just before noon, President Biden presided over a ceremony in the White House, on the White House lawn 
to celebrate the signing of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, the first gun reform legislation signed into law in three decades. Brilliantly shepherded through the notoriously inept upper chamber by Senator Chris Murphy, the law does a hell of a lot more than we've seen in recent memory, and yet has also drawn criticism for falling well short of what our lawmakers should be doing to curb gun violence in America. That's an observation which, forgive me, seems pretty damn redundant. Of course it doesn't do enough. No bill short of taking every single common sense measure would be enough in this crisis. Universal background checks are common sense. Registration of every firearm is common sense. Proper licensing for every gun owner is common sense. Banning civilian ownership of assault weapons is definitely common sense. The absence of any of these in a bill would make that legislation inherently flawed, even if they were the sole absence. That must be the good faith reading of any rational adult in government. But our government is not flushed to the gills with rational adults. And so the most rational adults among us must not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Let me state this resolutely. This new law is substantial progress and deserves celebration. And I personally don't need more than a moment's thought to understand that many thousands of lives will be saved because of it. That is worth celebrating. Of course it's not enough. Why would it ever be enough? 18 years from now, thousands of children will have just graduated from high school who would have otherwise been brutally murdered in a mass shooting or by an abusive relative or by themselves with an unsecured firearm in their home that was purchased by a domestic abuser. I was there on Monday with hundreds of other attendees. I saw Manuel Oliver stand up in the middle of the president's remarks, not far in front of me, and let the world know this isn't enough. That's true. It's not enough. He has every right to be angry at the pace of all this. The man lost his child. That is a pain I can't begin to fathom. I also saw numerous advocates carrying full-size photographs of their slain loved ones, far too many of those being a child school portrait, coming up to President Biden and other elected officials to thank them for taking a few steps forward, saving a few more thousand lives, giving a few more million people a bit more hope for the future. It seemed like just about every single gun reform advocate in the country was at this ceremony, and almost all of them were willing to express two thoughts simultaneously, that this bill is a good thing, one through dogged advocacy, and also that it's not nearly enough. This new legislation would have been possible without countless advocates doing the labor for so many years. And even so, Gabby Gifford's story is one of those that stands out among that extraordinary crowd. A few hours after the ceremony, many of us made our way downtown to the US Navy Memorial Plaza for the DC premiere of her documentary. Four months is a long time as we've now established, and I could definitely feel the difference between the screenings. I didn't feel as depressed or worn out in Austin. Maybe it was the, the, the lack of national reporting on mass shootings in the first quarter of this year, but the whole situation seemed to significantly lessen in its incessant horror for a bit. Certainly nothing like the gauntlet of terror to which we've all been witness since April. And yet, there was hope. Had we not all just been at the White House to observe some significant steps forward? The documentary seemed to match this balanced tone of grounded optimism and brutal honesty 
honesty perfectly, beat for beat. The filmmakers Julie Cohen and Betsy West previously won widespread crit critical acclaim for their documentaries on the late Justice Ginsburg in 2018 and on Polly Murray and Julia Child in 2021. All of them public figures navigating the exceedingly thorny intersection of power, influence, and gender. Gabby Giffords' Won't Back Down is firmly within that tradition of excellence while also capturing a potent urgency that confronts the violent uncertainty of this hellish era in which we live. For a long time, there has existed a muted paranoia throughout the nation, a feeling that any of us could be next in a mass shooting. But the decline of our institutions and a corresponding decline of faith in our institutions and the ripped stitches of January 6th, raw and festering and wholly unclean, have added an additional and formidable layer of desperation to our national mood. Basically, how the hell are we gonna fix this when the tools required to fix it need fixing themselves? The documentary doesn't blow smoke over this, but it also refuses to back down from the claim that we can get through this together if only we had the faith in each other to do so. Gabby Giffords and Mark Kelly have that kind of faith in each other, and it shows. So, the story. It was 2006, and Gabrielle D. Giffords, a 36-year-old former CEO of her grandfather's local tire company, had seemingly come out of nowhere to win a congressional seat covering an area the GOP had held for more than 20 years. She had sold the business in 2000, did two years in the State House, two years in the State Senate, and then launched a long-shot bid to win in a district where the Republican incumbent had trounced both of the Democratic challengers in the two previous election cycles, both by more than 24 points. Excuse me, let me take a bit of water real quick. Well, the GOP incumbent, Jim Colby, decided not to run for re-election. On top of that, the more moderate GOP candidate who was most likely to succeed him and would have been more competitive was plunged into scandal. And then on top of that, the, VOP chode, the, VO, the GOP voters chose a far more conservative successor. And this is against the backdrop of Democrats nationwide having a hell of a year in effective political messaging and on their way back to grabbing the House. And suddenly, this seat through all these factors, seemed very much up for grabs. It was a good year for Democrats, basically. Yet, all of that still fails to account for the magnitude of the pendulum rebound that occurred in Arizona's 8th Congressional District that year. Gabby Giffords didn't win a nail-biter. She didn't simply take the edge in a photo finish. She won by more than 12 points an unqualified landslide, a swing of 36 points among voters from Republican to Democrat in only two years. It wasn't just that she won in a landslide, but that she did so in a district that was overwhelmingly Republican supporting. And she did this while being unapologetically pro-choice, supporting a pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, and refusing to agree that marriage should be restricted to one man and one woman. Because remember, this is 2006. How? How was she able to do this? The documentary highlights Gifford's extraordinary interpersonal intelligence 
at once empathetic and authentic and competent and completely disarming to even some of her most conservative constituents who didn't support her. A dynamic on the recipient that's described by admirers in the film as being, quote, gabified. That's not an exaggeration. Go look up interviews that Giffords did before the shooting. She sounds like a real person. She sounds like the most evolved form of a kind and well-informed neighbor who truly wants to make the world a better place. I have been a student of politics for a long time, and I've heard countless anecdotes about Clinton and Biden and a handful of others making someone in a crowded room briefly feel like they're the only person in the world. But even that effect, that notable effect, carries something of a conceit that we all seem to accept, that this is their job, and they're the best in the country at it. And the greats, with a capital G, are meant to suspend reality for a few moments. It's almost like a magic trick, and we understand it's not real, and the vast majority of us are okay with that. But the thing about Gabby Giffords, which seems abundantly clear, is that she never needed the benefit of reality being suspended in order to reach someone. It wasn't magic. It wasn't a trick. It was just her being herself. The opening scenes of the documentary point to Gifford's most likely trajectory back in the early 2000s. A handful of terms in the House, then probably some time in the Senate, and down the road, it is implied, and quite rightly, a truly competitive candidacy for the White House from a notable swing state, probably sooner rather than later. It was the first week of January in 2011 when Giffords and her advisors had made plans to huddle in D.C. and start prepping for a likely run against then-Senator Jeff Flake in 2012. By the way, can you imagine that race? She would have cleaned his clock. Before they could do that, there was a constituent event to attend, uh, attend called Congress on Your Corner, a feature of her district outreach that had become a high priority for Giffords. It was supposed to be 90 minutes of greeting folks and talking out their concerns in front of the Safeway and La Toscana Village. Just past 10 a.m., as Giffords and her staff engaged with constituents, a coward whom I refuse to name, armed with a Glock 19 pistol and several magazines he had purchased at a sporting goods store just a 12-minute drive away, walked up to the congresswoman, shot her in the head at point-blank range, and then began firing at everyone else. Ooh, I'm gonna take a drink of water real quick. Gabrielle Zimmerman, 30, Giffords Community Outreach Director. Dorwin Stoddard, 76, retired construction worker. Phyllis Schneck, 79, homemaker. John Roll, 63, Chief Judge of the U.S. District Court for Arizona. Dorothy Dot Morris, 76, retired secretary. And nine-year-old Christina Taylor Green, who is getting interested in civics and wanted to meet the Congresswoman. Six deaths, six deaths, 14 injuries, including Giffords, and less than 60 seconds of shooting. Daniel Hernandez, Jr., an intern in her office, had the wherewithal to slow Giffords' bleeding and ensure she didn't choke on her own blood, long enough for paramedics to arrive five minutes after the shooting started. That one critical piece would save her life at the most necessary of moments. 
Daniel Hernandez is a hero. Gabby Giffords was pronounced dead to most of the country for at least an hour that Saturday afternoon. NPR ran with what they thought was a critical scoop based on two unconfirmed sources. And the rest of the national media did the bulk of the work in pushing it out. At one point, every major network was reporting that Giffords had been assassinated. By the way, as much as I love NPR and certainly support their journalism, the close of their explanation and apology over this incident more than a decade ago is ludicrous. They wrote, quote, while NPR made a significant mistake that dinged its credibility, it should be commended for quickly apologizing and being transparent. Rather than hurting NPR's credibility, taking responsibility for the mistake should enhance it. Close quote. What? Are you kidding me? I, I just, I can't believe that the public editor for NPR without shame could write that sentence. Again, I love NPR, their track record is sterling, but this one incident is just embarrassing. Anyway, Mark Kelly, Gifford's husband, a seasoned NASA astronaut who was then prepping for an upcoming shuttle mission, listened to a news broadcast informing him that his wife had been murdered and he broke down in tears. As much as this documentary is about gun reform and Gifford's journey of recovery and her love story with Kelly, that particular scene over NPR's callous approach at the time, the normalized rush for media to be first rather than be right, is especially potent. The problem with clumsy media going for clicks and listeners rather than accuracy is one that very much persists to this day. Did I mention that Giffords and her family have a hell of a sense of humor? I certainly didn't expect to laugh as much as I did while watching a documentary on an assassination attempt. Throughout her recovery, Giffords, even through the dense fog of recalibrating her brain, sparks scenes with her wit and warmth. At the DC premiere, the audience probably had a laughter break at least a dozen times. That's how funny this documentary was. Her chemistry with Kelly, it almost feels underwhelming to describe it that way, is the engine of the movie. During the Q&A after the DC screening, CNN's Kate Balduin had asked Giffords and filmmakers Cohen and West about the undeniable theme of a, quote, feminist marriage between them, a true partnership between Giffords and Kelly that tracks a balanced but nuanced inverse of their public roles before and after the shooting. Giffords eventually returned to the house in the midst of her recovery for critical votes, but declined to run again, the health complications being too much to surmount at the time. Kelly, having completed his fourth shuttle mission, retired from NASA, pissed as could be about the lackluster response from Congress following the, the attempted assassination on his wife, and gun violence generally, particularly in the wake of Sandy Hook. He retired and launched a bid from John McCain's old seat in the Senate. That's how angry he was. Kelly, whom the documentary lovingly describes as far more of an engineer than a politician, is guided through his campaign by Giffords. One notable and hilarious scene in the documentary shows Giffords tutoring Kelly on the maiden speech he's scheduled to deliver following his victory against Martha McSally. Giffords playfully urges Kelly, slow up, or excuse me, slow down, heads up. She's, she's tutoring, she's coaching him through his speech. And Kelly, 
honestly demonstrates an impressive adaptation to a skill set he's never needed. For his part, Kelly's predominant role is caregiver, tending to Giffords throughout her recovery process, keeping the family steady and optimistic, doing the emotional labor typically expected of women, and all the while continuing his demanding work as a literal NASA astronaut. Cohen and West depict an ideal marriage of equals, simply two human beings who love each other and bring out the best qualities in one another's hearts during the worst of times. Their relationships with each other and their kids and their close circle of friends and family emphasize the importance of community. I met Gabby Giffords in Austin after that screening back in March, and I, I couldn't help myself. I, I had to come up to her to get a picture with her at the DC screening on Monday. She didn't know me from Jane. I was just another admirer in the crowd. And yet, she took the time in both instances, both back in March and this week, to thank me for attending, gave me a great big hug, and said some encouraging words. I was most certainly gabified. Four months is a long time these days, and the world is already very, very different from March as it will be in November, four months from now. The speed of change has become so quick, seemingly everything in flux, that we are forced for our own sense of stability to grab things that are steady and hold on for dear life. It is in uncertain times that leaders who can offer us a sense of certainty shine the brightest. The Gabby Giffords, who was once discussed as a likely future presidential candidate more than a decade ago, is the same Gabby Giffords who received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian honor, last week. Folks will point to her example of recovery and resilience, or the work that's been done by her organization eponymously named Giffords to educate the public on gun violence and push for common sense gun reform, or her general leadership in the public arena, which is more respected and influential than ever. But with humility, I would offer that none of these are the greatest achievements of Gabby Giffords. Her greatest achievement is reminding us all of the importance of community in an era through which our country has never demonstrated a greater need for it. Four months is a long time, and the world is changing quick on its own axis. But Gabby Giffords, more than a decade on, even in her most vulnerable moments, hasn't changed much at all. She's always been right there, in the community, doing the work. If leadership means empathetic continuity, she's among the greatest to ever take that walk. God bless her for it. Gabby Giffords Won't Back Down enters nationwide release in theaters this Friday, July 15th. You can view the trailer and you can find showtimes in my blog on substack.com.